This podcast contains adult themes and language. Listener discretion is advised. The murder of Michelle Lawless was committed by multiple people. The physical evidence tells us this. The grass 103 feet at the bottom of the hill indicated a struggle. The grass, which was covered in blood, was matted down as if someone had fallen there. It's assumed that Michelle was knocked out at that location. There were footprints in the grass leading up the embankment. They were not exactly footprints, but indented grass showing footsteps. The grass was not matted down in a way that would indicate that Michelle was dragged. The bruising and nail indentations of Michelle's wrist indicate that someone carried her by her wrist at one end, and since she wasn't dragged, it's a safe bet that she was carried by her feet by a second person. This is bolstered by the fact that Michelle's pants were ripped, her back pocket torn, her leg got caught on the guardrail. If someone were hefting Michelle over her shoulder, this would not have happened. And carrying a body up that steep embankment over your shoulder, even as small as Michelle was, would have been a daunting task. That is unlikely given the other evidence. It's a very reasonable assumption that at least two people were involved in Michelle's murder. That's a consensus that pretty much everyone who has looked at this case, including Bill Farrell. Rick Walter believed he had built a strong enough case for charges against two people. We've explored the evidence against Mark Abbott. Walter's evidence against Mark Abbott includes a combination of DNA belonging to Mark or Matt Abbott found on a place on Michelle's body that did not fit Mark Abbott's story. That was coupled with criminal reconstructionist calculations that Mark Abbott could not have lifted Michelle's body up from a lying position due to the way the window was rolled partially up. Reconstructionists surmised that Abbott could not have had his feet on the ground while grabbing Michelle's shoulder. The DNA found on the underside of where she lay, and the fact that the bullet holes perfectly aligned in her position when police found her is evidence that suggests that Abbott never lifted Michelle up, which is the meat of his story. If Abbott never lifted up Michelle, he therefore lied to the court. Walter's physical evidence is combined with accounts of witnesses who say Mark Abbott admitted to them that he killed, quote, a girl, or, quote, the bitch. Several factors led the criminologist to believe that Michelle was never moved after falling across that seat, which indicates his DNA was left on her while she was still alive. One witness, who I won't name for reasons of potential retaliation, told investigators that Mark Abbott said he was dating Michelle, but was keeping it secret because he didn't want his girlfriend Missy Williams, Kevin Williams' sister, to know about it. Again, there is a witness who told police that Mark Abbott was seeing Michelle. And that relationship points to possible motive. And we all know that Mark Abbott had opportunity. He was, after all, at the crime scene and left his DNA behind. So Mark Abbott has lied under oath. He lied to police. He said he saw rings on Michelle's fingers that were not there. He told a lie about the position of the window. He told a lie about identifying Josh at the scene. Ultimately, according to the Reconstructionist, he's also told lies about picking Michelle up by the shoulder, seeing her bloody face, hearing her gurgle, and dropping her down again. These are not small lies. They are lies of huge consequence. Walter believed he had probable cause to arrest Mark Abbott for charges of first-degree murder along with a list of other charges. Again, the evidence suggests the murder was committed by two men. Mark Abbott is the obvious first suspect. Two probable cause statements were filed with the prosecutor. The other suspect is Kevin Williams. As far as I've been able to tell, there is no physical evidence that links Williams to the murder. 
There is witness evidence from at least two people that Kevin Williams was with Mark Abbott at Country Nights Bar the night of the murder, not at the holiday party with his ex-wife, who has rescinded that statement. And Mark Abbott himself implicated Kevin Williams, telling narcotics officer Bill Bonert that he saw Williams shoot Michelle over a pregnancy dispute. Mark Abbott stated Williams took off to the sales lot, an assertion that's been confirmed to me by anonymous sources. Kathy Fowler said she heard Kevin Williams say Mark Abbott was responsible for the murder and Kevin Williams was there. And then we have Helen and Robin Natvig who say Williams indicated to them that he knew details about the murder, pointing to a trailer and saying that's where it all started. Other witnesses have told investigators that Kevin threatened them to secure their silence in the drug trade by telling them that the same thing that happened to Michelle would happen to them also. And then you have Dallas Butler, who said he rolled up on his motorcycle and saw a girl leaning against the steering wheel and a man standing outside her door that matched the description of Kevin Williams. Butler later picked Williams out of a lineup. Neither of these men, Kevin Williams nor Mark Abbott, have been charged or arrested. And many of you listening by now are probably wondering, well, why in the hell not? We're about to get into that. It's a bit of a mystery as to why they haven't, but we have a vague idea. In 2017, then-prosecutor Paul Boyd called a grand jury to hear evidence in this case. KFES broke the story several weeks after it was convened. The grand jury did not indict either suspect. In a minute, we're going to hear Rick Walter's version of what happened. But before that, I want to share with you what Paul Boyd told the Southeast Missourian after the newspaper published a story about how key witnesses were not called. The next two paragraphs are how the newspaper described Boyd's response on its reporting about the grand jury. While a grand jury can bring an indictment to proceed with a trial, it can also provide, quote, feedback on what evidence they would have to move forward in a criminal investigation during their term or with the next grand jury, unquote, he wrote in a recent letter to the Southeast Missourian addressing questions by the newspaper regarding some of Walter's concerns about the case. Quote, we are doing everything possible to actually solve this case and ensure that the case can be prosecuted in a court of law versus the court of public opinion, or for that matter, any personal opinion of a former sheriff, unquote, Boyd wrote in his prepared statement, quote, the difference between knowing someone committed a crime and proving a person committed a crime are opposite poles that are misunderstood by the public at large and some peace officers, unquote. I've spoken with a former prosecutor generally about grand jury process and when you file charges, there's obviously a spectrum depending on the prosecutor. Obviously, prosecutors Christy Baker Neal and Kenny Holsoff would take just about anything to a trial. Others want to remove all doubt and only proceed if they know 100% that they can win the case. Boyd's position is like a scene from A Few Good Men, when the lawyer played by Tom Cruise gets frustrated with the lawyer played by Demi Moore. Cruz is in charge of the trial strategy, while Moore's character was driven more by a moral and emotional position to do the right thing. Cruz tells her, it doesn't matter what I believe, it only matters what I can prove. And so Cruz's character proceeds then to pursue the line of questioning that could have gotten him into trouble, and that has a payoff at the end of the movie. What former prosecutor Boyd was saying was that he was using the grand jury as an investigative tool, not strictly to pursue charges. Essentially, he was saying to the public that he felt he lacked the evidence to prove guilt beyond a reasonable doubt, even though he indicated he felt he knew who committed the crime. 
Our justice system has many checks and balances in place to protect innocent people from being convicted of crimes. Those checks and balances failed Josh Keezer at every turn, but those checks and balances are protecting the current suspects. Two men are suspected of killing Michelle Lawless. Hearsay rules become an issue. Time becomes an issue. Memory becomes an issue. A prosecutor's willingness to try this case and risk losing is an issue. Also at issue is a willingness by those in charge, including Scott County Prosecutor Amanda Ash, and now the Missouri Attorney General's Cold Case Unit Prosecutor Kevin Zellner, and the Missouri Highway Patrol Division of Drug and Crime Control to commit the time and resources needed to bolster existing evidence and find more. I'm your host, Bob Miller. You're listening to The Lawless Files. When uh, you were assigned as an investigator, was uh, Mark Abbott a suspect in this killing? No, sir, not at any time. Neither Mark Abbott nor Matt Abbott were vampire or friend. Why was that not done? I don't know. I, I don't know that they weren't. I, I don't know. He answered when we got talking about the conversation of Josh Keesler being the one that done it. Abbott just looked at me and just kind of laughed a little bit, and he said, yeah, they got... They got the wrong guy for that. He said, I took care of that bitch. I called Sheriff Farrell myself. I said, well, would you like me to come down and, you know, talk to me about this? He said, no, there's no need. He said, I don't need to hear anything from you. I've got my conviction. Case closed. That was it? That was it. Before KFES broke the news that a grand jury had been convened, and before Mark Bliss and I started our reporting, the Lawless case was not on our front burner. We knew the Lawless case was unresolved, of course, but several members of the small staff at the Southeast Missourian were untangling the reasons why David Robinson, a Sykeston man, should be exonerated. Like Josh, David Robinson was convicted on jailhouse informant testimony, which was later recanted. There was no physical evidence, and David had witnesses placing him away from where the murder took place. David Robinson was convicted by Sykeston Department of Safety Police, not Scott County Sheriff's Department, but both cases involved some perjury or false statements by officers. The Southeast Missourian produced a documentary on the Robinson case. As we were in the planning stages of that, I thought it might be cool to see if Josh Keezer might be interested in doing some narration on the project. I reached out to Josh, and he didn't know much about the case and didn't want to put his name behind something he didn't know about, so he declined that invitation. And that was fun. I understood that. And our documentary ended up being some of the best work of my career. But Josh insisted I needed to take another look at the lawless case. You know, we had different communications and he indicated there was more to the case than what had been reported. He intimated he was not accidentally convicted of the murder of Michelle Lawless, but was intentionally convicted. To be honest, I thought at the time Josh was maybe reading things into the case that weren't there. I thought he might have been exaggerating. But I told him once we were finished examining the Robinson case, we would give Lawless another look. And so we did, and we found out what Josh was saying was true. In late 2017, Mark Bliss began to poke around. We interviewed Rick Walter, and he told us how Kevin Williams had learned that the Lawless murder file had been reopened back in 2006, and that raised all sorts of alarms. Bliss and I worked on that case for several months, but the origins of that investigation began with Josh who's been working at great emotional sacrifice to keep the lawless story and the investigation front and center. Kevin calls 
Bill Farrell. Now, he knew Bill Farrell, um, but in front of Gail, basically he calls and says, hey, we need to meet. Okay, so we're picking up where we left off in episode 13. The voice you're hearing is Mark Bliss, a former newspaper reporter for the Southeast Missourian. He and I both worked on an investigative series for the newspaper that published in 2018. I encourage you to go look at the materials at scmissourian.com lawless for more information. Bliss did interviews with Bill Farrell, with Gayla Mooney, who's Kevin Williams' ex-girlfriend, and Terry Williams, who is Kevin Williams' ex-wife. And Bill Farrell says, sure, and they go to meet in a parking lot at the Montgomery Bank in Sykeston. Uh, and... And so, and so Kevin, Kevin, they go in Kevin's, yeah, they go over there and they get into Bill Farrell's vehicle. Um, Gail is in the back seat, as I recall, she telling me, and, uh, and Kevin gets in front, front passenger seat, uh, and with Bill Farrell and talks about this thing. And Bill, according to Gayla says, you know, you don't have anything to worry about. You don't have anything to worry about on this. The impression I got from talking to Gayla and from what she got was that that clearly um, Bill Farrell and Kevin Williams um, knew something about the murder. Um, you know, and, and I think her comment too was that Bill Farrell basically just told Kevin Williams, you know, keep your mouth shut uh you know and everything will be and okay. everything will be fine now what's interesting about that is that bill F bill farrell says in a later interview with me um that he barely knew kevin williams um yet kevin williams calls him and they go and immediately meet in this parking lot Sykeston Bank. Um, clearly, from Gala's comments, Bill Farrell and Kevin Williams were very familiar with each other, and uh, so yeah. So if you're, if if you're, uh, you wouldn't if if you're somehow accused of something, maybe maybe even that you didn't do, and it spooks you, and you're you're scared, you know, is you know, you're gonna just dial up the former sheriff is that what's you know like that's that just right. seems like um that it, it just doesn't seem like that would be the first call you you'd make it, it seems like you might call a you know your attorney or a friend or whatever but it seems like the first person he called after uh receiving that message from josh um his first his first instinct was to call bill farrell right right yeah But kind of started to talk about this a little earlier when you reopened the case. Uh, speaking of politics, mm -hmm. um, uh, you got a lot of resistance. Can you talk about uh, the kind of the controversy of reopening that case and kind of who was against it and, and what are, what were those reasons? The, the law enforcement was against it. I mean, er, I don't think I went anywhere without meet some resistance from law enforcement saying, why are you doing this? You know, um, I, I was visited by highway patrol 
a couple times, some of their investigators, and one of them, and, and I had some of the people that it was back in the day and knew about this case, they said, you need to leave it alone. The drug task force was very interested in this case. I, I don't know what, why they were interested in this case. Um, the, uh, the person that was uh, in charge of the task force at the time uh, was, wasn't happy at all. You know, and he, I think he even kind of said a couple times that I'm just trying to make Bill Farrell look bad. Well, I wasn't trying to make anybody look bad. I was just trying to find out the truth. So I don't know why they were upset. The DEA one time was upset that uh, we opened up a murder case. Um, uh, the locals, and I say locals, by Sykeston Department of Public Safety was, was not happy about about this case. Um, smaller departments around, they everybody just said, you know, this is uh, this is really bad. And and I don't know if it was because of loyalty to someone else. Um, or if it was just that law enforcement doesn't open up a, a closed case because, you know, if you talk to law enforcement, they don't make mistakes. Mm-hmm. Well, they do. They're human. As long as we have humans doing these jobs, we're going to make mistakes. So I met with a lot of resistance from uh, from uh, law enforcement more than anybody, mm-hmm. you know, and said, I need to leave this alone. And um, to be honest, well, one, I had a, one of the investigators come, from, uh, come to my office one day. I didn't realize I had him confused with another investigator. I didn't know, didn't recognize him at the time. And he came into my office and we talked about it. And he said, you know, Sheriff, you really need to leave this alone. He said, you've got it. You have a conviction in this case. You need to leave it alone. And that's whenever I, I told him what exactly was on my mind. I said, the next person that tells me that I've got a conviction in this case. I know there's a conviction. I'm going to slap the piss out of them. And I said, and I'm not, I'm not going to, I'm tired of hearing this. And uh, that was the last time that any highway patrol had ever come up to me and told me that. Uh, matter of fact, I think it was the last time that any cop ever come up and told me. It's just, you know, um, I, I asked uh, Bill Bonner about this. Um, because he was removed from the task force for, for help helping in this case. And um, I asked him, you know, that the, Josh Keezer was convicted allegedly because Michelle Lawless turned him down when he asked her out. There was never any mention of drugs whatsoever in any, you know, right. as a motive for Josh being convicted. So why would the CMO Drug Task Force have any kind of opinion on this? His answer was, well, it's publicity and the Highway Patrol was involved with that case and they didn't want the bad publicity. Does that square with you? I, <laughs> that's good. I can see I can see that in part, you know, but it's still uh, it. They were asked. I asked them when I first opened this case, um, would you matter of fact, I contacted the colonel at the time and the colonel at the time that I reopened this case was one of the crime scene investigators. He actually collected evidence at the crime. He was a corporal at that time. Uh, I so I wanted to involve the highway patrol. Because I thought, you know, they were involved in this. Uh, they could get, this could look bad on them or it could look good. They could, you know, it's like they came in, they could come in, they could help. And it's like, yes, 
uh, and, and it wouldn't have been on the highway patrol because the highway patrol wasn't in charge of this investigation. Scott County Sheriff's Office is in charge of the investigation. Mm-hmm. The highway patrol is limited to what they can do. You know, they can't, they can only investigate once they're asked by another entity to be involved. So, uh, I thought, I thought I was doing the right thing. Um, when I finally got through to the Colonel, um, and I, I never left a message about what I wanted. I just said, I just need to speak to him. And so whenever I had him on the phone, I, I asked him, I said, uh, I told him who I was and I said, I've opened up an old case. And he said, if you're talking about that lawless case, he said, Sheriff, we'd like to stay away, far away from that as possible. Which really seemed kind of odd to me that he would even say that because he had no idea why I was calling him. I thought. Yeah, that's really bizarre. That that, that was really odd to Somebody me. Somebody who was, yeah. So, yeah. I, you know, and I'm not I'm not saying that he was done anything. I, right. I'm just, I, maybe that lines up with what Bill was saying. Maybe the Highway Patrol didn't want to look bad. You know, maybe they didn't want to be drug into this. Uh, but I would think that, you know, I, I, my my plan was to bring them in and just let them work with my detective and, and have free reign with, with whatever they needed to do. What about, um, there, there was a time where you wanted to test a gun uh, or, or a bullet. Okay. Yeah, yeah, a, a gun. Was, yeah. Was test a bullet. Yeah, yeah uh, there, was a, there was another case that, that some of the similar cast the characters kind of were right there was there was a murder that happened in the county south of us and it was the same caliber weapon that was used the same caliber bullet so uh, some of the same players may have been involved in 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 what i wanted to do i wanted to find out if it was if it came from the same weapon now it's because i i i i messed up i really did um I contacted the this local sheriff down there. Well, the, he he doesn't he doesn't at that time he doesn't hold his own evidence, and he said the Highway Patrol holds that evidence for him, and it's locked up in troop headquarters. And I I contacted the prosecutor down there, and he said he said um, he wouldn't release that information because at that time his his conviction uh, his guy was sitting on death row, and he said once that. He decided once that uh, was carried out, that his sentence had been carried out, which was an execution, then he would have not have a problem with turning over the evidence, the, the bullet to me, to be tested. So we knew someone that worked for the governor at the governor's office. They um, contacted the highway patrol and said why won't you let the sheriff, Scott County Sheriff, look at the because the highway patrol contacted them and they wouldn't turn it over to me. And all I wanted to do to see if if it if it came from the same weapon because they didn't have a gun, I didn't have a gun, we just had the bullets. And um, it turns out the uh, it again the highway patrol was got pissed off because we um, was trying to examine the bullets which was non-invasive it was just it was just a test it was, it was, it was just something they could look at and, and tell whether it came from the same weapon or not um put it under a microscope in other words right yeah right and so it wasn't like it was going to damage anything uh so they were upset and i thought my gosh if i can't get the governor's office if the governor's office attempts to try to do get information from my patrol and they get shut down what are they going to do to some 
lowly sheriff down here in Podunk, you know, USA. Eventually, those bullets were tested. They were put under a microscope to look at the twists and the markings so that they could be compared against one another. Walter went on to tell me that he went to the SEMO crime lab to look at some preliminary results and talk to a couple of lab technicians. Walter said he and the lab technicians read the reports and that they showed that the bullets were both twisted in the same direction. Later, the results came back with different twists on each bullet. Walter said he regretted not getting copies of the preliminary reports, but he said they're no longer available. The official report is that the bullets did not come from the same weapon. At that time, the Highway Patrol had recently taken over the the labs in the state of Missouri, the crime labs in the state of Missouri. This one used to be ran locally. So, um, again, the person that was over all the labs in the state of Missouri was, was very upset about this case, and he contacted my detective, and he said, if you ever get the bullets from the New Madrid case, and he said, I doubt that you ever will, but if you do, I will be the only one to examine them and no one else. Again, now I'm starting to get a little nervous about that, so I contact the lab again to get those those reports, and I can't get them. I messed up that day because I didn't get copies. I thought, surely to goodness, that that wouldn't happen. And But I... You know, with the way this whole case ran, I probably should have. Yeah. I, I knew better. Yeah. So uh, that, you know, did we rate it wrong? Did did I mean I I I'm not I'm not a lab tech, but I had two different lab techs read them both to me. Uh, so Kevin Williams. Uh, upon receiving this message, calls Bill Farrell. Bill Farrell tells you he doesn't really know Kevin Williams. Didn't he also? Uh, what did he say? What did Bill Farrell say about the relationship between uh, Kevin Williams and Mark Abbott? Didn't he? Didn't he? Didn't he, he, didn't he, he well, didn't he say that uh, he didn't even he didn't know that they were friends at the time? Right. That's correct. Um, he he did say that. He was not aware that Kevin Williams and Mark Abbott um, were friends or knew each other. Um, Mark Abbott's another individual, along with Kevin Williams, whose names came up prominently early on in the investigation. And yet, the sheriff's department, you know, basically, the sheriff did not pursue a lot of these leads. Um, well, I, I would just note so, that um, Josh Keezer's attorney knew that Kevin Williams was Mark Abbott's best right. buddy. And we had, uh, we kept, kind of kept the prosecutor in the loop about what was going on. Uh, I was, and it's it's hard to, to say that you trust the prosecutor because after after realizing that maybe the leak came from the prosecutor's office, you know, that went to Bill Farrell, that went to talk to a, a possible suspect, um, you know, you couldn't really keep him in the dark about everything, but it was it was kind of hard to to have that trust, you know, and 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 uh, unfortunately, that's 
that's my only route. I can't go into anybody else. I have to go to the, to our local prosecutor. And the only way that it goes to an AG or it goes to a different another prosecutor that doesn't, you know, in case there was a, a conflict of interest, it has to be granted by the local prosecutor. So um, we had felt that we had pretty much everything we needed um, to get maybe, you know, get a warrant or get indictments uh, if they took it to a grand jury, took it to the prosecutor, and I believe that was in 15, 2015. He said, he said it looks good to him. It sounds like he's ready to, he's ready to go with it. Um, there was something else. I can't remember off the top of my head exactly what it was. He said, but if you get me one, this something else, I don't, he said, I think we're ready. He said, I'll, we'll take it to a grand jury, um, in 2015. Uh, I believe it was in the summer is what he was going to talk, what he was talking about. And so we, um, got the, the one other thing that he wanted. Um, he said, I, he pushed it back to 2015, the little, fall of 2015 he said i think i'm going to what i'd like to do he said i would like to see the grand jury give them some small cases to get them seasoned and then i will give them this big one and i said sounds good to me well the fall of 2016 comes and i uh, 2015 i'm sorry comes and i said where are we at he said i'm gonna wait till 2016 I'm going to wait till maybe the spring of 16. And uh, I, I didn't, I, I wasn't happy about that because every day that you wait, you got witnesses that's, like we talked earlier, they're nervous. You know, they don't, you're talking about a murder. You're talking about some pretty bad people. And he decided he wanted to wait. And so um, I began as, I was a little suspicious uh, at that time. Uh, his guy was going to run against me, which was West Drury. And uh, we, I go to him and I said, are you ready to go? And he, he said he would do it later uh, in the year. At that time, I, the, the election, we was in the middle of our election. Um, I had a, I had a, I was being primaried against uh, some, somebody that was working with, working with West and West had a primary um, he said, I'm going to do it after the election, but this has nothing to do with the election. So we waited, uh, I won my primary West won his. And I said, okay, it's after the election. Let's do this. He said, I'm going to hold off. Now we're talking about a November election. And, um, you know, as one of the family members told me, they said they're playing politics with my dead daughter. You talk. Uh, we talked a little bit about the phone call that Kevin Williams made to uh, uh, his wife Terry, um, right there in front of Rick Walter, put her putting yes. her on speaker. But you had a chance to talk to Terry uh, back when we did this investigation, and she had some pretty incredible um, information too. So some some background on on Terry is is that uh, she was married to to Kevin for many years. Um, she um, had always provided an alibi that night. There was a, uh, the party at the, uh, the place where Kevin worked. Again, this was November 
seventh, the, the uh, Saturday night, they were having a company party, and at this party, they give out the uh, holiday bonuses for people for Christmas. And so, uh, uh, the the background is is that Kevin and Terry and their little ones were there at that party, and. Um, Terry has provided that alibi that Kevin was at that party all night. Um, but when you got, and she's testified that up, up, up through 2009, she testified to that. And, uh, Terry, uh, Terry was not involved with any of this. Um, she was not involved with any of the drug dealing that came later. She was kind of stuck there with an abusive husband. Um, but when you had an opportunity to talk to her, um, and what did she, and, and tell me what she told you. Well, what, what she told me was that she and Kevin were at this party and, uh, she, uh, that Kevin did not go home with her. Um, she ended up, she wanted him to go with her. Kevin was his usual self and, uh, you know, kind of talking to some of the other, women and uh he did not want to he was not ready to go home so she said that contrary to what she said he did not go home with her that night she went home but he was not with her and that was a total contradiction to what she had told authorities all along so that was really his alibi right and so what happened there was and then he uh, left the party later but that she was yeah yeah so what happened was uh, mark abbott um and this is confirmed by um a court testimony but mark abbott along with missy williams that's kevin's sister um and mark abbott was dating kevin's sister missy at the time and then another woman named uh laura uh, came to the Howell party to, uh, in attempt to pick up Kevin to go, to go to an, another party. And so what happened was they, they show up there. Uh, they want Kevin to come with them. Kevin wanted to go with them, but, uh, but, but Terry's like, no, you're not, you're not <laughs> going to a party with another woman and leaving me here with the kids at your company party. And so, um, he did not go with them right away. And again, that's, that's been confirmed. Yeah. By, but but basically what what Terry's saying now is that sometime after that uh, Kevin left on his own and he he left the party and he joined up uh, with he with he Mark. did not go home with her yeah and that so there's a, a period of time that evening what, that Terry who had been his alibi could no longer account for. The other stuff that she talked about was the very next day after the murder, she told me that Mark Abbott came to their house and Mark Abbott and Kevin Williams went back to the murder scene, the exit ramp in the area around there off of I-55 to quote-unquote look for evidence uh, which Terry thought was rather strange Um, 
and well yeah there's you a, know why yeah. why suddenly mark abbott shows up the very next day and they neither one of them being a law enforcement official are suddenly going to go look for evidence While Rick Walter and Paul Boyd were trying to get on the same page regarding the lawless case, West Jury defeated Rick Walter in an election. Historically, at least for many decades, Scott County voters had elected Democrats locally, but as the years rolled on, voters in the rural county started voting more and more conservative. Walter lost his race in the same election that Donald Trump defeated Hillary Clinton. Walter, who had been taking it on the chin from other law enforcement officers in outside jurisdictions, lost to Jury, who had worked for many years as an investigator for Boyd in the prosecutor's office. Before that, he worked under Farrell, and as you probably remember, he was the jailer who released the Abbott twin from the jail and the crime scene on the night of the lawless murder. It rolls around, the election comes and goes, I lose, um, and now we have this Wes is going to be the sheriff and he doesn't take it to the, to the uh, grand jury. I, I was, again, pushing it. I, I, I met with, uh, before the election, I met me, the prosecutor, the judge, a judge, and my detective and myself. And we met and talked about this case. And I told the judge what we, some of the issues that we had and, and, and told the judge, you know, I started talking about the case and I stopped and I said, I don't need to talk to you anymore about this because this could taint the case, you know. And he said, "You can." He said, "You can tell me anything." He said, "Because it's not going to be tried here. The only thing that I want to do is rule on a change of venue." So I I opened up to him, and he told me he said, "You need to get warrants on these people." And I said, "I'm good with that. My prosecutor is not interested in it." Okay, and so uh, at this point you're still sheriff. I'm still sheriff. But yes. you just haven't had the transition yet. That would come. Well, like I hadn't. I hadn't lost the, the election. Still, the November election, the general okay, election so this, has not happened. Okay. This is before. Okay. So okay. So the election season still going on. You yes. wanted to make sure that this case gets on in case something else something else happens. Yeah. Something happens. And so uh, you've called this meeting, and. Um, and the, and the judge says, uh, the judge says what? The judge judge said, well, maybe we need to go ahead and get warrants because one of the suspects has uh, uh, has a property in Belize, and I, that again, I found that out early on in the investigation. Uh, I was told that he's got money set aside, he's ready to go at the drop of a hat in case something happens. The judge asked me, he said, can you, you know, if he decides to leave? I said, he decides to leave, he can leave if I don't have a warrant. There's nothing that says that we can hold him. Uh, he recommended that we could go ahead and get a warrant. My prosecutor said that he didn't think that the other judge would sign off on it. Um, he's, my, my judge said, that's not a problem. And uh, the prosecutor said, I would like to send, see the grand jury and give this to a grand jury. We went back and forth a couple times when I was explaining what some of the case, what would happen. The judge stopped, stopped us and he said, he looked at me and he said, they're going to kill you. And I said, yeah, I know that. And uh, he said that again. And I said, some people in this room don't care whether I live or die. And I was referring to looking right at the prosecutor. Again, that's one of those, you know, back and forth things. But uh, the judge said, if he 
if we thought we needed, we could probably seek a warrant and get warrants. Warrants, more than one. She came in her own mind to believe, you know, that, uh, believe the alibi. Um, Kevin kept telling her this and, and all this. And it was only years later that she kind of came to the real, came to the realization uh, that yeah. that wasn't the case. So I, kinda... I, I feel sorry for her. Cause I think, I, I think being in the abuse, you say, how could she provide an alibi if she knew it was false? I, I just think that she was in such a situation and, and that mentally she was just in a tough spot. Yeah. And um, so I have a lot of sympathy for her and what she yeah. went through. Yeah. It um, just kind of, uh, kind of flooded over her mm-hmm. um, that, that, oh my gosh, that's right. He didn't go with me that night, uh, go home with me that night. He, he was gone. And I, I will say this also that there is other testimony that supports that Kevin was with Mark uh, that night. We have um, uh, Glenna Pierce, uh, who's the mother of Heather Pierce. So, so the background and, and uh, on that is that right after the murder, um, Mark says he went to. Well, he did go to Heather Pierce's house. This is a uh, two girls. Well, Heather and and her mother Glenna had gone down to Sykeston to uh, throw darts and dance at country nights um, bar in Sykeston and so they they were with Mark there and so after uh, after witnessing um, the you know Michelle after touching Michelle uh, Mark uh, said he reported the crime to the sheriff's department and then he went to Heather Pierce's house okay and then he was freaking out. He said he's got, you know, blood on his hands. He needs to wash up. And he's just like really shaken and disturbed by what had just happened. And Glenna Pierce um, was interviewed by police at some point, um, you know, to confirm that he was there and everything. And she said that she, uh, in a deposition later, so this would have been in 1993, she said in a deposition that kevin williams was there also that night because she remembers having a conversation with him oh well you you showed up late what you know like didn't know if you're going to be coming or not and he made some you know kind of offhanded kind of joke about you know he got held up um so there's other testimony out there that shows that um that kevin was not at the howell party at least not all night long um, and I think that's uh, pretty solid information. So, oh. so anyway, like I said, uh, you did some great work on that. I was Thank proud you. to work with that, work with you on that project. And some of the information that you uncovered is really what sent me on this journey. So, um, you played a bit. You played a big part in, in all this. So I appreciate it. So oh, you're welcome. All right. KFES did some really good reporting on the grand jury situation. They were the first to report that a grand jury had been convened and no indictment passed down. In addition, they reported that certain key witnesses were not called to testify, including the DNA experts. Mark Bliss and I did our own reporting and found that other witnesses also were not called. 
Southeast Missourian ran a series under the title Pursuit of Proof, The Lawless Murder. One of the headlines read, quote, A grand jury with no indictment, but key witnesses not called, unquote. So I'm going to quote some more here from the Southeast Missourian. The Southeast Missourian has learned that at least three key witnesses, and likely a fourth, were not called to testify before the grand jury. The witnesses who the Southeast Missourian has learned were not called are a DNA expert who could explain the technology and reliability of touch DNA, a crime reconstruction expert who Walter said could have explained techniques used to reenact the crime scene to show the suspect Mark Abbott was lying about his physical interaction with the lawless body that night. The ex-wife of another suspect who now says that her then-husband Kevin Williams was not at a party as he has claimed on the night of the murder. The newspaper went on to report that a second crime reconstructionist, James Kent of Los Angeles, was likely not called, but Kent would not confirm that, only saying he'd been instructed by the current sheriff, West Jury, not to talk about it. Jury told the newspaper he never gave such an instruction. Now Boyd, the prosecutor, told the newspaper that there is no statute of limitations on murder and the prosecution, quote, has one shot left based on the wrangling in this case's history. It would be improper to waste the time and resources of the county at any criminal trial based on conjecture and assumptions not grounded in admissible evidence, unquote. In response to Walter's criticisms, Boyd also said that Walter testified fully. Grand jury testimony is not considered part of the record. Bill Farrell told the newspaper regarding Williams and Abbott, quote, I know that their names were brought up and they were checked out, unquote. Farrell told the newspaper that Williams had an alibi. West Jury told the newspaper, quote, My job is to find facts and seek justice, unquote. He said he wanted to make sure justice is done while also ensuring that injustice is not done. So obviously this case is drawing a lot of attention and emotion out of people. I'm honestly not sure whether politics actually did play a role in delaying the case from Boyd's side. It's easy to see why Walter would believe that, considering the man who ended up defeating him worked for Boyd for many years. But I also know this. The Michelle Lawless case is insanely complicated. It takes a lot of time to understand it all, and the evidence itself is complicated. Take just one example, Kathy Fowler's testimony. Could her testimony be used against Mark Abbott? Remember, she heard Kevin Williams talk about the murder, with Williams saying that Mark Abbott was involved. But that's hearsay, because she heard it from someone else. Fowler's testimony, however, could be used against Williams. So drawing the lines on hearsay alone would be a tough task, something to weigh heavily before heading to trial. But it does seem odd, just from a layman's perspective, to go into a grand jury proceeding with no intent to get an indictment. But on the surface, that seems to be what happened. Boyd indicates that the case wasn't tight enough to go to trial. The political assumptions that Walter and others make is exactly why I've advocated for outside assistance in this case. And the fact that West Jury made the first big mistakes in the case is a reason why the county should have asked for assistance shortly after he was elected. But Boyd and Jury are friends. For Boyd to ask for assistance would be kind of throwing Jury under the bus. But does that mean that Boyd is going to use the lawless case for political purposes? No, not necessarily. Is it possible? Yeah, it's possible. And so at, the, at this point, I um, kind of wanted to, to 
rewind the clock just a little bit uh, in your transition out of office and West Jury's transition in office. Um, you know, what, was there were, was there any kind of meeting or communication about this case about uh, you know how they should move forward or or just kind of getting the context uh, of any of that? The the only contact that we had uh, after the election, um, Wes had came to my office. I was still in office. He'd come to my office to drop off some paperwork from the prosecutor's office. And I just happened to see Wes in the hall. And I said, wait a minute, I'm going to talk to you. So I went out in the hall uh, in, in the lobby of the sheriff's office. I shook his hand. I, I said, congratulations. I said, you won. And, you know, it's, it was a uh, wish all the luck. I really did. And I said, if there's anything you need from me, I said, let me know. I said, I'll, I'll we, you know, you know, sit down and talk. We can talk. He, he reluctantly shook my hand. He never spoke a word to me. Uh, I told him that I would be available and that he could come talk to me anytime before I left, uh, after, and he turned around and left. And that was the only, um, I guess that was the only interaction that we had. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he actually said absolutely nothing to me. I mean, political differences aside. Right, right. Isn't that a... Um, Aren't you letting the people of Scott County down, you know, by not um, putting, you know, trying to put politics aside and, and, and making it, you know, especially as it, as it concerns this case, which is so controversial, you know, um, it just seems to me like that might have been a, a, a lost opportunity for the people of Scott County, you I know. It, I, I think, I think it is, I, and you know, and I'm, I'm not here to say that I've done everything right when I was in office. Uh, you know, every, Lord, we all make mistakes. You know, if you don't make mistakes, you're not doing anything. Um, you know, but that's something that, with this case, you know, we, I took through my 12 years at, as sheriff to make, try to make sure that we don't make mistakes. And if we do, somebody could bring that to me and say, "Hey, you screwed up on this." It's, it's, yeah, it's kind of hard to take. It's like, oh man, I'm, I'm sorry, you know, we messed up. Let's go back. Let's revisit this. Look, look at it. Because the bottom line is, you know, you know, you said earlier that my, you know, that I look at these cases and take it to the prosecutor and, you know, send them to prison. Really, I never looked at it that way. I looked at it, we just, whatever it is, it is. We need to find out the truth. And if, if, uh, if this guy was involved in something illegal and we got him, we done it above board and we done it 100% to our best of our ability. If we lost that case because we didn't do something right, uh, I'm not going to fabricate anything. I'm not going to make something up. You know, you still have to, you know, I still live here. You know, mm-hmm. I, I've got I've got kids and grandkids that live here. So I'm, I'm sure Michelle's case wasn't the only case that was ongoing, you know, at the time. Yeah. It just seems like there would have been, okay, this is, um, you know, I'm moving on. You're coming in. Here's what's on the plate. Here's what you yeah. got, and he, let's talk about the lawless case because I have a lot of institutional knowledge here that I want to pass on. Um, you know, to to, to me, I, and I know the politics got real nasty there. Um, you know, and and politics comes into play a lot. Um, but but for me, 
serving the public requires you, you gathering that information mm-hmm. if you're if you're wanting to solve this right. case. Right, right, and you know, I, uh, you don't have to take my word for anything. You know, it, I, I I would sit down and and uh, tell you everything that I know because. The bottom line, I'm out of office. The bottom line is there's still people out here that done this and got away with it, and 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 they're walking amongst us today. Some of them pretty close. Uh, so, uh, you know, it's not it's not you know it's not about me. And I and I told Josh Keys this long time. I said, you know, when we got to the point where he was actually innocent, found innocent. It's, it's, it's not about me. It's not about you. It's not about, you know, it's, it's about justice. And, and I know as corny as that sounds, you know, it's, it's about justice. It's about doing the right thing for people in the, that live here and pay their taxes and, and work. And, and uh, it's just to do the right thing and, and find out the truth. And if the, if the truth was Josh Keezer did it, then I, that's fine. And I told him that, you know. Uh, so uh, uh, it didn't matter really at, whenever we started this. It didn't matter where it landed. You know, uh, it, it just needed to be it needed to be resolved, and and so the family could find out what happened, and the people of Scott County could find out what happened, and and to be political about the whole thing, it's just it's honestly it's bullshit. You know, uh, I don't know if I can say it on your podcast or not, but uh, it, it is. You know, and and um, I to this day I've I've offered um, uh, to the new prosecutor. We have a new prosecutor. I. I've offered anything that I can do for her to help her with this case. Um, I've been, I, before her election, we talked every day. After her election, she, we've talked maybe twice, and that's through text messages. Yeah. I think it was right after the grand jury, and, and uh, I was... Believe it or not, you can't tell by looking at me, but I was at the gym working out, and there was a captain with the fire fire Cape Girada firefighters came in, and he was and he said uh, he said hey he said I I just want to get a hold of you and tell you something I said well what is it he said I was in uh, he said I walked in I was walking into Snooks the grocery store he said I was walking across the parking lot and he said there's a he said I saw all these papers just blowing across the parking lot. And he said it was a. I said, well, how many was it? He said it was a lot. And uh, he and I, he said I wasn't going to pick any of them up. And he said until I looked down and there's one laying face up. And it, he said it had your, uh, had had your, uh, um, letterhead on. And uh, he said I picked it up. And he said I read it. And he said it scared the shit out of me. And. And I, he said, then I picked up, he picked up like three or four more papers. And he, and this, I think this, I believe I'd have to look back, but I believe it was March the 9th of, of 17. And he said, I, I read, he said, when I read that, he said, I got scared. He said, scared the shit out of me. And I said, well, what did you do with those papers? He said. Or what did it say? What? what? The, the, the one that he read was just a memo. And, and it was just a memo and kind of, um, it was a memo that I had wrote and that I had left with the, uh, with kind of with the investigation to pass on to Wes or, and his command staff so they would have this information, what I had, you know. 
and it was just a one-page memo, you know, and it had some it had some kind of highlights in it or whatever that that was kind of serious. And I thought I'd just give it to them, and if they want to contact me, they could. And I said, "What about the rest of them?" He said, "Well, they was already blowing across the parking lot, so I couldn't, you know, I wasn't going to run around and pick them all up." I said, "So what did you do with them?" He said, "Well, uh, Wes's son worked part time as a firefighter here in Cape." He said, "So I gave them to him." I said, "So what we have." is we have a case file of an old murder blown across the parking lot in Cape. And I said, and you gave these other ones to a kid. And I said, so everybody's reading them, right? And he said, well, yeah, that's kind of it. He said, I know how to get a hold of you. Well, again, I'm not sheriff. And I said, well, was how was it signed? He said, what do you mean? I said, how was my memo signed? I said, because if it's in blue ink, I said, I sign everything in blue. If it's black, then it's probably a copy. He said, I got pictures of it. So he sent me pictures of it, and then he opened it. He actually opened it up and looked at it, and it was signed in blue, which is an original. And I, I said, well, so he showed me the other ones, and they were from the old printouts from the 90s. Uh-huh. Now, these papers should have never, ever left the sheriff's office, ever. They never did when I, when I was in office. And and this was printouts on other other folks back in the day. It wasn't copies. It was the originals. I don't know what a lot of papers meant. I don't know if it was a whole case file. Yeah. So so essentially, evidence, evidence is just gone. It's, it, it could be. It could be. It yeah. could be gone. Um, I believe I was told by another reporter from from the local news station, KFES. That he and you can ask him. I wish he was here. You could ask him if this is what happened. But I believe that he said that he had confronted Wes about that, and at first he denied it, and then he asked him, I think again, and at that time he said, he said, can you explain how this happened? He said, I don't know, and just laughed about it, and that was it. So, whenever what's really troubling about that, so. What are you going to do with this case? If you can't be trusted to hold the files on this, and these are original files, these aren't copies. And now I don't. There could be other copies that flew out there. I don't know. So what do you? What else have you done to this case? I, when whenever he told me that, I, I was sick. You know, again, politics aside, because then you got to look. You got to look at somebody and say. What else have you screwed up on this case? No, what else are you hiding? They've screwed up so ma- so much from the very beginning. I mean, from the first minutes yes, yes. Uh, of this case, uh, and it, and they, they they're continuing to be errors and errors and mistakes. And, and again, you know, you can you can go over ours with a fine tooth comb. Or did, was there mistakes? I'm sure there are. Mm-hmm. You know, because I, but there was very few people that had had a hand in any of this. So. You know, if if mistakes were made, you can narrow it down to one or two people, you know, and say, well, maybe, or maybe we didn't ask the right questions, or or maybe we missed something. Uh, that 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 could happen. We could miss. I mean, you can all miss stuff. Since you've been looking into this, Bob, you you've uncovered stuff. That, oh my gosh, I'm kind of embarrassed because <laughs> I haven't got this, you know. But I always I always it's always I always give myself the the, the excuse of. Well, you know what? I had other stuff going on. Mm-hmm. You know, I had other cases going on. I had all this other stuff going on. But but, but it doesn't excuse that. Well, but also, um, you know, the 
everything builds on the last thing, you know. And so the stuff that you provide gives more to examine and more to examine and, and down the road. So, um, you know. So here we are. In this 14th episode, you're generally caught up with the timeline. In 2017, a grand jury was called, but it appears that the intent was not to indict, but to investigate. In 2018, a new prosecutor was elected. That's Amanda Ash. In November of 2021, I launched this podcast. A couple months into this journey, Ash decided to seek help from the Missouri Attorney General's Office and the Missouri Highway Patrol. So that's where we are. And that's a good thing. So now that we're all caught up, I think it's a good time to go all the way back to the beginning and examine what happened with all of the context that we've learned across this journey. It's November 7th, 1992. Michelle has been cruising all night with her friend Lalisha Odell and boys Eric Shanks and Vince Howard. A few days earlier, Michelle had a public fight with her new boyfriend Lyle Day. Day said the fight was over the abortion that he wanted her to have, but they had already had that fight weeks earlier. Complicating this is that Michelle wasn't actually pregnant. Remember what Michelle said in the diary. He was being a butt, so I didn't tell him. Kevin Williams is at a company party. Mark Abbott, Missy Williams, and Lori Conklin, who is Williams' teenage girlfriend, come by to pick up Kevin Williams from the party to go out in Sykeston. And Terry says, no, you're staying here. So he stays, at least for the time being. According to Laura Conklin, Mark Abbott takes off in his truck to Sykeston. Missy and Laura go to Sykeston separately, where they look for Mark at different places but can't find him. Mark is in his black S10 Chevy truck. If we're to believe Mark Abbott's statement to Bobby Wooten, Mark heads to a party in Sykeston where he sees Ray Ring. If that's the case, it's likely he sees Lyle Day, too. Day and Ring were together most of that night, according to statements from both. Eventually, Day, Ring, and Gene Haynes end up at a party near Matthews, Missouri, about 24 minutes from the Benton, Missouri exit. Mark Abbott eventually arrives at the Country Nights Bar, where he, he's seen by Andy and Tammy Stone, owners of the TNT Tanning Salon, where Lyle Day works. Tammy is a good friend of Michelle's. Tammy recognizes Mark, knows him from his twin brother. The Stones leave early. At some point, Kevin Williams arrives at Country Nights, where he explains to Glenna Pierce he's late because he couldn't meet up with Mark like he usually does. Michelle cruises Sykeston all night, drinking beers in the back seat. After cruising, she drops off her friend Lalisha Odell. Michelle asks her to spend the night, but she can't because Lalisha has a fresh coat of paint on her bedroom walls, and she's sleeping on the couch because her bedroom is a mess from the painting project. Lyle Day, Gene Haynes, and Ray Ring leave the party at Matthews. Ring and Day later state they head to Haynes' sister's house to drop off Haynes' car at Morehouse. They are on the move. Michelle goes to the Malco parking lot and talks to a few people before driving to Leon Lambs. She arrives at Leon's. They have sex. She asks if she can stay or if he can take her home, a question she would not asked before. He says no, sorry. She kisses him goodnight, grabs her shoes, leaves her button flies undone, and gets into her car and drives off, headed for home. A witness reports seeing a white Ford Escort on the overpass at Highway 77 and I-55. It's the same make and model driven by one of Lyle Day's friends, which one source told me Day and others frequently used because it was properly licensed. 
Mark Abbott, and Kevin Williams leave the Country Nights Bar. I have three accounts of a semi being seen on the exit ramp. One comes from a Jim Solon's investigative report, another comes from an anonymous source who was familiar with drug activities at the time, and then there is Helen Natvig who said Kevin Williams told her about the semi. Keep in mind that semis were used to bring meth in from California. Michelle is driving up the interstate. Lyle Day, Ray Ring, and Gene Haynes are on the move. They say they only go to Gene's sister's house, but they have no alibi between 12.30 and 1.10. Mark Abbott, Kevin Williams, Ray Ring, Gene Haynes, and Lyle Day have all been, at one time or another, convicted on drug charges. Mark Abbott is on the move too, but at what time exactly? If Kevin was at Country Nights, what time did he leave? We don't have a solid answer. Michelle approaches the exit ramp. Many speculate that Michelle stopped for someone flashing headlights behind her. Mark Abbott told Bonert that's how he got her to pull over when he said he witnessed Williams shoot Michelle. But I don't believe the circumstances support that necessarily. For one, family members told me she would not stop for a stranger under any circumstances late at night like that. I don't think you could recognize a car by its headlights when they're flashing behind you in the middle of the night. Plus, I do not believe Michelle wanted to go home that night. She was looking to stay with Lelisha or Leon. She'd had the big fight with Lyle Day just days before. There was drama swirling around Michelle. Was she afraid of driving home? Did she know something was going to go down near the exit or the sales lot? I don't believe she pulls over voluntarily. I believe it makes more sense that she is blocked. Remember, this is an exit ramp. It is one way, it is narrow. It is blocked on both sides by guardrails. There is no way for her to turn around. But for her to be blocked, someone would have to be waiting near the exit to block her way. This means someone knows she is coming this direction, and at about what time. It's possible that she is blocked and another subject pulls up behind her. If Michelle's attackers are familiar with local policing, they know there are no patrols at this time of the night. They know the Missouri Highway Patrol doesn't work this stretch of road. They know the sheriff's department doesn't patrol the county roads in the overnight hours. If Michelle is blocked, then she must be frightened as subjects approach her car. She rolls her window halfway down. If Dallas Butler is correct and he sees a light-colored truck at the interchange, then that means the white escort and semi-truck have moved on by now. It would be around this time that Butler drives up on his motorcycle and comes across the petite girl and the man in the red hat. The girl is hunched over the steering wheel. She doesn't move. The man tells Butler that everything is okay. Butler drives on. Michelle is still in the car. I don't believe she voluntarily gets out of the car. I think it's a safe assumption that she is forced out by the barrel of a gun. She opens the door, steps out, afraid for her life. The exit ramp is a terrible place for a murder. No one would plan a murder at this location with cars passing by under the overpass and occasional cars coming up the ramp to go home. I presume that she is being forced into another vehicle. And I wonder if Michelle thinks that too, that stepping into that vehicle will end badly for her. I believe Michelle makes a split decision. She's athletic. She kept herself in decent shape. She knows her house was just a quarter mile away. I believe Michelle makes a run for it hurdles the guardrail, and sprints down the embankment toward home. She makes it 103 feet, or a third of a football field, 
before she is caught. Law enforcement has suggested that she was hit with the butt of a gun. She is hit twice. They are thunderous blows that gash her head. Michelle is knocked out. It's pitch black down the embankment. There's a low fog. Eyes are adjusting to the blackness. Cars are passing by. A decision must be made. Michelle's killers could just leave her here. Walk away. She's knocked out. They also have an opportunity to kill her right here. In fact, they've already had several chances to kill her, but they haven't. There's a lot of risk in this moment. They assess the situation. Michelle's knocked out. She's in the middle of a field next to the sales lot. No one can see them down the hill, but her car is still on the exit ramp. They decide not to kill her and instead opt for the labor of carrying her back up the hill. It's a steep embankment. You don't go to the trouble of carrying her up that hill if you intend to kill her. At least I don't think so. The plan now is to place her in the car. Maybe they believe the message has been delivered. One of her killers grabs her wrists. The other, I believe, grabs her ankles. So they're carrying her up the hill to put her back in the car. At some point, Michelle's killers have to start noticing the blood. It's dripping from her gash into her hair. But it's dark. Do they notice it right away? They rest her momentarily on the guardrail, and as they move her forward, her pocket catches on the guardrail, her attackers pull, and her jeans rip. They heft her around the front of the car. They place her on the ground near the front fender, where blood pools from her head. One of her killers opens the door. They place her inside. And then the dome light, which is super bright after being in the dark for several minutes, shows the damage they've done. They see her face. What's at stake in this moment? Blood is everywhere. The girl will need medical treatment. She might have a concussion. Surely she'll need stitches. There is so much blood it looks worse than it really is, but they don't know what the autopsy would reveal days later. Ray Ring and Lyle Day arrive at Teresa Haynes' house in Morehouse, Missouri. Jean Haynes looks out the window sees Lyle's headlights and tells his sister he's going out with Lyle. Michelle is in her car bleeding. She's a threat. A threat to expose something. A threat to expose, at the very least, her attacker's identity. But probably more than that. It seems her attackers stopped her there not to kill her, almost certainly not at that location, but to take her elsewhere. But where? To the trailer behind the sales lot, perhaps? You don't point at a gun at someone, certainly not a 19-year-old girl who weighs less than 100 pounds, without a reason. It's a big risk to point a gun at someone. That's a felony. Logic says something important is at stake. She's there in the driver's seat. Her attackers weigh the options. What now? Do they take her somewhere else? Again, what's at stake here? Felony charges. An examination of motive. Will Michelle tell authorities how she knows you and why you stopped her and why you smashed her head? She begins to come to. Her killers see her face, blood pouring down. She looks at her killer. Do they discuss what to do? Was an order given? Certain witnesses have indicated as much. And a decision is made. The gun is lifted toward her. Michelle throws up her hands in a defensive mode as the trigger is pulled. The shot particles flutter upon her hands. In an instant, a second shot is fired into her head. Michelle is dead now. She falls over onto her right side, 
and a third shot is fired into the left side of her back and it lodges into her arm. She is laying over the seat. This is how Rick Walter and Roy Moore find her. The killers scramble. Something terrible and unplanned has taken place. Cars are passing by on the interstate below. Again, decisions must be made. Where to go? Where to hide? What to do with the weapon? What to do with their bloody clothes? Mark Abbott would tell Bill Bonert later that Williams ran to the sales lot. Others have made that claim also. Minutes pass by while the scramble ensues and until someone takes note of the maroon Buick with its lights on and motor running. Jerry and Ruth Householder stop at the stalled car. There looks to be no one around. They drive to the sheriff's office. Moore and Walter head to the scene. A man who gives his name as Matt Abbott reports a girl has been shot and killed. He's told to go home and someone will be in contact for questions soon. EMTs arrive. A white car drives down the outer road near the sales lot and turns around. He approaches the crime scene. Roy Moore stops him and the man speaks in a thick Hispanic accent. Moore can barely understand him. The man says he's looking for gas. Moore tells him to drive up to Scott City. The man who gives his name as Matt Abbott returns to the crime scene. He's in a white car according to Moore. Moore calls West Jury, the man who took the report from the Abbott twin. Jury tells Moore to tell Abbott to go home. Abbott takes the interstate north towards Scott City. Mark Abbott goes to his home in Scott City, quote, right back here to the house, unquote, which is what he tells Tom Beardsley the next day. He would tell police he was only taking the Benton exit so he would go the back way and avoid Scott City police. In less than 12 hours, Mark Abbott would tell Beardsley he took 77 back home. Mark Abbott most likely goes home first. This information is confirmed in other ways, one from an investigative file from Jim Sullins and from a second source who told me the same information. Mark Abbott then leaves his house and pulls up to Heather Pierce's house in his black Chevy S10 saying he's touched a dead girl, he has blood on his hands, and he needs a bathroom to wash off. Morning comes. Lyle Day goes to TNT Tanning Salon. He and owner Annie Stone get into an argument, one witness tells police. Stone tells Day he doesn't want him to come around anymore, the witness says. Later, Stone calls the sheriff's department. He doesn't mention Lyle Day. Mark Abbott shows up at Kevin Williams' house where they depart. Depending on whom you believe, they go to the owner of the sales lot, to his house. Then they go to the sales lot. It's the second time an Abbott twin has returned to the scene in the past six or seven hours. They go there. Mark Abbott told Kevin's then-wife to look for evidence. They would tell the court that Mark was just telling his story about finding the girl. Chief Deputy Tom Beardsley interviews Mark Abbott. Abbott says he saw rings. Michelle's rings were not on her fingers, but in the console. Abbott says he reached in and grabbed Michelle. Beardsley knows the window was halfway up. Beardsley sends Mark Abbott in for elimination prints and another interview. Beardsley is taken off the case. Days later, Mark Abbott is listed by Beardsley as a suspect. About a week later, Mark Abbott names Ray Ring. Months later, Sheriff Bill Farrell and the sheriff's lead investigator, Brenda Shivitz, claim Mark Abbott was never a suspect and that Shivitz's notes were destroyed. The notes, however, were not destroyed. 
Months later, snitches come forward with a story. A story they themselves admit is a lie well before Josh Keezer is convicted. Josh Keezer is railroaded, stuck with a conviction despite no physical evidence linking him to the scene. Kevin Williams, Mark Abbott, and Matt Abbott go on to become major players in one of the biggest meth rings ever taken down in Southeast Missouri. It goes on and on and on, as you well know by now. Some of what I just described is speculative, educated guesses based on logic, and I've kind of indicated that. But most of what I just described is in the public record. What I have shared in this podcast is a lot, but what I have shared is not all that I know. The story is darker even than what we have presented in this podcast. We continue to pursue the truth. The Lawless Files podcast will shift gears at this point. This is where the narrative timeline ends. You're now caught up in the timeline. But we will continue investigating the case and bring you episodes as we dive into particular areas and interview more people. We won't be satisfied until Michelle gets justice. The story of the Michelle Lawless murder is tragedy stacked upon tragedy, injustice upon injustice. The heartbreak hurts more knowing there are many individuals out there who could bring resolution to Michelle's family. Fear overrides justice for many of these people. In some cases, it's loyalty to the criminals who took Michelle's life. In others, it's simply the fear. But my hope is that witnesses listening to the podcast understand that they are not alone in sharing information. We will continue to unearth the secrets in this murder case. There is still much truth to be extracted from that Scott County soil. I'm your host, Bob Miller. You're listening to The Lawless Files. The Lawless Files is hosted and edited by Bob Miller and co-produced by Bob Miller and me, Tyler Grave. We'd like to thank Jacob Wiegand, Jeff Long, Rachel Long, Jesse Dew, Kara Kaminsky, Chuck Kaminsky, Allison Miller, Shawnee Graves, Laura Ritter, Bobby Clubs, MJ DeGraff, Ben Matthews, and Mason Dukachek, who helped voice the court transcripts. Again, please go to thelawlessfiles.com and subscribe.